Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, I'm good and with it being Oscar night, I am struggling to contain my indifference. Mmm, yes, it's Hollywood's biggest night Mm. and our... It's just a Sunday, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's just a Sunday for us really. (laughs) A A regular Sunday in which... We have to think about which is the the least worst outcome mm. of of the the awards that are going to be head, handed out. Yeah, which one of these is going to annoy me the least? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like particularly when you look at like best actor, that category yeah. is is no good. <laughs> no, it is uh, it's poor, and it's it's not like in a kind of snarky. Uh, we're too good for the Oscars sense. It's just this year. And then we've mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. This year, it's 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 a dry old list, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Although I did find it quite funny. I had some of the red carpet coverage playing earlier, and I thought it was really funny that one of the presenters who kind of had to lead into some kind of package stuff about Willem Dafoe, who's nominated for Best Actor, seemed to have not heard of the movie that he was in so much so that he the, the way he phrased it was like Willem Dafoe is nominated for best actor for at heaven's gate like someone uh, like Ron Burgundy style had put a question mark into his into his teleprompter and I thought that was that was really funny because I think I feel like that was the response that a lot of people had to that nomination mm, yeah and it was the Indus Independent Spirit Awards last night or night before mm. last, which is a much more palatable set of uh, awards and, uh, and much uh, more in our wheelhouse. Uh, it's like kind of type of award ceremony. Yeah, certainly seems a lot more to kind of echo some of Emily's thoughts from the show last week. You know, it seems a lot drunker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like everyone's having a high old time and sitting and for a few hours and drinking and maybe being a little bit sloshed when they have to stumble up on stage to pick up their awards. But like I say, there was some there was some fantastic results from it. Uh, Barry Jenkins won for Best Director for If Bill Street Could Talk and that film also won Best Picture, neither of which was it nominated for at the Oscars. So that was one of those things where you could say, see, they got it right. They mm. know. They know what's up. Richard E. Grant won for Best Supporting Actor for Can You Ever Forgive Me, which I would love to see repeated because I think he's great in that and he has been just the joy of award season. Glenn Close won for The Wife, which seems like that's probably going to be the result in the Oscars as well. Uh, Ethan Hawke won for First Reformed, which is, you know, there's no problems with that uh, mm. as far as I'm concerned. Did uh, Kroll and Mulaney uh, present it this year again? No, it was uh, Aubrey Plaza who hosted this year's. Did she do it in a kind of fairly deadpan way? Yeah, a little bit. There was a certain dry affect to <laughs> to the way in which she delivered her jokes. Uh, mm-hmm. And she was very, very funny. She had a, a good bit where... I can't remember who it was she was, like, making a joke about, but one of the nominees, like, talking about how 
they have like a stereotypical thing is like but i'm not I'm, and she said you know i'm not making fun of you you know like you're just doing that in the same way that i'm up here to make people feel awkward and then mm-hmm. she just like was silent for a full like 15 seconds and <laughs> just kind of like playing with the microphone and i thought that was really that was really funny <laughs> way of distilling what aubrey plaza's energy is down to a, a single joke mm-hmm Bo Burnham also won an Independent Spirit Awards, which I was very happy to see. I think he won for Best First Feature or Best First Script. Mm, that's a great shout. Yeah, Best First Screenplay was what he won for. And, you know, there's lots of things to love about 8th grade, but his writing in that is particularly is particularly wonderful. Mm, yeah, so, uh, so what you say Beale Street won Best Picture? And Best Director, yeah. So it won a few, and I think Best Supporting Actress for Regina King as well, mm. So, which is another one that is kind of favoured in at the Oscars. That's probably the one award at the Oscars that has a decent shot at getting. Yeah, I'm kind of stunned that Beale Street isn't up for more kind of the technical stuff, production design, costume design, that kind of thing, because it seems pretty exemplary in, in those terms. Mm, yeah, I was shocked to see that it didn't, I'm pretty sure it didn't get a nomination for Cinematography, which is, you know, even even people who didn't like the film and they were have said that it's visually gorgeous. Mm, yeah. If, if it was going to be nominated for anything, that seems to be the thing it would have a good chance at. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's a shame because it, on paper, appears to be kind of pretty kind of Oscar, you know, worthy, adapted mm. from a, you know, very well-regarded uh, bit of literature by people with Oscar pedigree, but... Yeah, it just left people a little cold. Mm, yeah, that and First Man both seem to, you know, and I only link those two obviously because of the whole Moonlight La La Land kerfuffle a few years ago. But both of those, you know, were kind of much anticipated follow-ups that everyone seemed to think, oh, it's going to be a repeat of what we saw two years ago. These guys are going head-to-head again. They've got projects that seem even more geared towards appealing to Academy voters and then just nothing nothing ended up happening first man ended up doing i think even worse than or only like just about as good as beale street when it came to nominations it, it got a few technicals mm. but that was more or less it yeah yeah well if warren Beatty reads the the awards out both of them have got a shot of uh, <laughs> a best picture who knows yeah. how it'll pan out tonight it, it will be it's i mean it's the red carpet's happening now mm-hmm. and yeah after that i'm sure it'll be a, a kind of a grim inevitable procession yeah, as it always is. But at least we'll be able to see all of the nominees in kind of grimly enduring the full length of the of the ceremony. Mm. Do you see the the thing in the the Onion this week that was like Rami Malek turns a career best performance uh, as a man who who convincingly acts like he does he never heard Brian Singer's sexual assault allegations. I I did. <laughs> I thought that was uh, a absolutely amazing joke. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, pretty tight. They really went in hard on that one. That whole thread, they had a whole thread of Oscar jokes. That one I thought was very good. There was also another one which was Yelitska Aparicio had never acted before before being cast in Roma, which shows that the entire <laughs> profession is a crock of shit. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a, a really funny joke that just kind of like treads the line between, you know, it could be read as making fun of her, but I think it's more just making fun of the fact that uh, acting in general is kind of very as a very self-regarding medium mm. uh, and yeah when you see someone who is a non-professional going up there and just doing a dynamite performance i think it does point to the fact that oh yeah like it this isn't necessarily the the hardest thing in the world <laughs> mm. yeah yeah 
despite what I'm sure are very long hours and not enough pay for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, without wanting to belittle the acting profession, I think I saw something of like you know the the, the Screen Actors Guild in America is like ninety seven percent of its members make less than seven thousand dollars a year from acting or something ridiculous like that. Mm. So um, yeah, uh, maybe that's something that should be celebrated rather than fucking Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, we can, we can only hope that it gets shut out, but I think most likely Rami Malek has done just a good enough job of kind of deflecting over the course of the award season. They'll probably do okay. Mm. At least for, for him, he'll walk away with a statue. Uh, although I do find that the notion of it possibly winning Best Editing really aggravating because, I mean, everyone's seen like the clip of them talking by the Thames and like how frantically over-edited it is for a simple dialogue scene and you know like it it really does seem to be a lot of people have made the case that that one got the nomination because the spin that's being put forward is like oh you know the editor rescued this thing that was a complete disaster and made it a functional movie which doesn't necessarily seem like the strongest argument (laughs) like you're not saying the movie's good or that it's Mm. the best editing you're saying wow look how bad it could have been (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this film could have been so much worse had this person come in and not put something forward that was just about watchable. Mm, yeah, if he hadn't given us something slightly more cohesive than a work print. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, editing around some of the, 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 the stuff can't have been easy, but, I mean, if you're talking about what is supposed to be the greatest demonstration of your craft in that Mm. cinematic year you know it really shouldn't have to be a bailing out job yeah yeah fair play to the guy for for putting something together that is more or less a movie (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's more or less a movie (laughs) one for the poster but yeah like it still doesn't necessarily feel, feel like the strongest endorsement from anyone involved Mm, yeah really really not um we, we we didn't say up top but this is going to be a somewhat shorter episode we don't really have a theme this week we just kind of talk about some stories that happened in the week and uh you know kind of then head out because like i say as much as we make fun of the oscars uh, i want to watch it so <laughs> i want to see if it's going to be as big a disaster as everyone expects it to be so our next story was uh, a netflix one as a lot of our stories tend to be which was that they announced this week that the Punisher and Jessica Jones TV series are being cancelled. These were the last of their co-productions with Marvel and Disney that initially were released a couple of years ago to great fanfare with the the first Daredevil series, and then each of the constituent characters of the Defenders got their own spin-off, and then there was a Defenders crossover events and you know there was this whole thing about how they were trying to do in television what the marvel movies were doing in cinema and uh, it just never really came together mm. um each of the constituent series except for iron fist had their defenders uh, no, no pun intended but they never really took off uh, certainly the defenders itself never took off that was like a complete damp squib and it it always seemed to be a really strange project because they were somewhat hamstrung because they had to exist within the same universe as the movies. You know, they have to take place, you know, in in 
the first series of Daredevil in particular, there's lots of references to like the incident or the event, whatever they use to refer to the Battle of New York in the in the Avengers. You know, there's this idea that the stories are taking place in the backdrop of all of these big stories that are being told in movie theaters. But then they couldn't include any of those characters, and there was a real sense at a certain point that the movies had no interest in any of these characters and there was never any going to be any sort of a crossover event with those so it was these these were kind of two universes that initially started sharing real estate and then kind of drifted off in separate directions and i feel like most of those shows weren't really strong enough to sustain audience interest or uh, their own stories much past their first seasons or in some mm. cases, much past their first like couple of episodes. Yeah, they they kind of flickered briefly, um, and then kind of, as we've mentioned before, kind of eventually succumbed to just trying to one up themselves technically with more and mm. more elaborate set pieces, uh, which is you know fun to watch, but you know is only going to keep you going so long. I thought Daredevil of all of them was probably the strongest, but yeah, oh Jessica, the first season of Jessica Jones is good. I'll, uh, mm. I'll, uh, I'll, you know, I'll say that that was pretty decent. I went to some weird places and some dark places, but yeah. The weird thing about this is, is that like, irrespective of whether you and I think they're good, they were pretty popular. Mm. And with Disney's streaming service starting this year or towards the end of this year, you would think that that's the obvious home for it. But the, the Disney Plus is very much a family thing. So the question remains, if they're very popular and they could probably make some money for them, where are they going to put it? Mm. Yeah, it does make you wonder if they'll even... Because I, I, like Netflix, I think, owns the rights to all their originals in perpetuity. So it's not like the old episodes will migrate over. They'll still mm. be on Netflix, not being updated with new stories. And Disney, like you say, they, they don't seem to necessarily be that interested in pushing the envelope of what the Disney brand is on Disney+. Plus. You know, it's not Touchstone Plus or something where you could imagine them maybe thinking, okay, that feels like more of a place for something that's aimed at maybe an older audience or a more adult audience, then, you know, maybe that'd be a place for them. But that's really not the case with Disney Plus, you know. These are going to be places for us to expand the Marvel Cinematic Universe with its kind of new spin-off TV shows, which are probably going to hew closer to that PG-13 tone mm -hmm. and style. And, you know, the Star Wars stuff, which is decidedly very family-orientated, feels as if there's not really a place for this, you know, failed experiment to, to land. Mm. Even though they 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 have quite literally they have the bandwidth for it if they wanted to. Yeah, it's always interesting that like Disney's always had their fingers in those pies, mm. but there seems to be more and more in the kind of recent years the idea that they're trying to consolidate that family dollar. Um, yeah. So yeah, it just feels a bit kind of weird that. In you know some of those shows probably didn't get to peak, and now it's like oh, someone's bought us and we're, they've got unlimited resources, but they're not going to do anything with it. They're just going to wither on the vine, which is mm. you know a shame for the fans. I mean, for me, there wasn't much more interest in it. I, I I did watch the last season of Daredevil and I did enjoy it, but I wasn't clamoring for more. Yeah, but you know it seems like an odd 
kind of uh, sign of the times that a company can be so profligate with with something you know a successful prof- uh, property mm. yeah and i think it maybe also points to marvel's the the marvel wing of disney possibly narrowing their scope of what they want to do because i think in the aftermath of the avengers they they maybe felt that they could do pretty much anything mm-hmm. and that's when you saw them really go in on like agents of shield which had the same sort of problems that the netflix shows had where it existed in the same universe as the movies but at least it had a character who had been in the movies in it and they also occasionally would have people pop in to assert the connection to the broader thing and at a certain point it just became its own kind of daffy serialized show that people seem to really enjoy and also had the benefit of being on a primetime network so you could actually say oh it actually is pretty popular it gets a lot of viewers as opposed to the netflix ones where no one knows how many people watch those shows you just have to infer that they're pretty popular <laughs> yeah yeah i said they were popular it's just i'm so, you know small sample size of five people at my work mm-hmm. um because that's probably the most reliable figures we have to go on yeah so it it definitely seems as if they were really bullish, and also agent carter as well they were really bullish on the possibilities of spinning off as many of these characters and stories as possible and taking advantage of the big library. And I think they have realized that there's not a huge amount of interest in the characters outside of the ones that are in the movies that people are really familiar with, which is Mm. why we're going to see, you know, a, a Scarlet Witch and Vision TV series coming out soon and where it really feels that they're going, okay, we're, we're, we're zeroing in on the characters who are actually Avengers but maybe can't sustain a movie, so we'll give them a TV show, rather than the more difficult task of trying to build up characters that don't have that association. Or if they do have an association like Daredevil and The Punisher do, it's with movies that people maybe don't look that fondly on. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a curious position, like I said, to, for a company to be in, that they can, you know, seemingly just abandon successful properties but you know mm. if if you're gonna re- re- you know take on a, a very close competitor you're gonna end up like you know eating them or you mm. yeah absolutely uh and it also it's a nice preview of maybe what we're going to be in for for the next decade or so of huge media companies really kind of slugging it out over streaming because uh, it seems to be that this this kind of period where everyone wants to be involved with Netflix is, or at least all these outside companies want to be involved in Netflix, maybe falling away a little bit and companies like Disney that are big enough to go it alone will be like, well, we have all of this stuff that people really like and does really well on Netflix. Why don't we just have our own streaming service and have it do really well for us? And then you'll really start to see just how much kind of cachet Netflix have built up over the last decade or so. Mm. Yeah, it kind of leads kind of almost coincidentally into the fact that this week Netflix launched the Umbrella Academy, which is mm. a Netflix original, but isn't tied to a, a kind of a Marvel or a, I don't think it's tied to like a Dark Horse or a DC or something like that. It's actually a comic written by the guy who was in My Chemical Romance. Yeah. But don't know that put you off. It's pretty good. But like, it's weird to think that, 
you know, Netflix, you know, would can just start another franchise or just go for something else because that seems to be in the position they have where they they have unlimited cash from somewhere, but yet we don't know how they're making it. Well, we know how they're making their money. We just don't know how they're making that much money. Hmm. Yeah. It's uh. Yeah. It's very curious. It's a very weird, weird period of media that we're in. Speaking of weird, weird uh, media, or at least weird media choices, uh, Jason Reitman uh, was in the news this week talking about his proposed Ghostbusters remake sequel that he's working on, and he made a somewhat tone-deaf comment about how his version was going to be giving the movie back to the fans. Ugh. Which uh, I think, in the considering how... Like, a lot of the criticism of the 2016 Ghostbusters was... Some of it was legitimate and people just didn't think it was a very good movie, which is fair enough. But a lot of it was, you know, people, particularly, you know, your kind of, like, MRA, alt-right Gamergate crowd deciding they were going to just attack the movie for months and months and months before it came out and harassing, in particular, harassing some of the people involved with it and this whole ugliness surrounding it that was giving the sense of, oh, this movie is, you know, these people are taking something away from us. Like, playing his comments, even if meant kind of totally innocently, do seem to be playing into the narrative that they've sprouted up which was that the 2016 movie was some sort of affront to the 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 the, the ghostbusters faithful mm. yeah it was it was a desecration of the incredibly serious film ghostbusters <laughs> and spoilt the legacy of the critically acclaimed film ghostbusters 2 yeah. um yeah it 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 goes a long way to endorsing the behaviour of fans who have engaged in nothing but kind of spiteful harassment based purely on um, a sense of entitlement and uh, kind of misplaced masculine rage. And it's really stupid. I can't... He took to Twitter, uh, this is Reitman, took to Twitter and said, well, that kind of got misinterpreted or came out wrong. He was just like, well, in what possible sense could that, that have come out right? Because, hmm. like, you know, you're not talking about the fans of the new film, the the people who enjoyed the new film. And, you know, I'll be honest, I wanted to support the new film and I, you know, went to see it. The, the film It's not great. It's not dreadful. It's no worse than Ghostbusters 2. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but that's... A film's quality is not in any way a good reason to harass or, you know, do preposterous things like downvote the movie on imdb and rotten tomatoes before it's even released in some way to kind of like bomb it in protest for reasons that make sense to only idiots so yeah and the thing is he under you must understand that like i don't understand how he ever thought that what he was saying would anyway would would be anything but reassuring reassurance to the people who felt so betrayed by what was essentially a cash grab remake that didn't particularly catch fire mm. that didn't seem to you know you can easily if you were really really that into ghostbusters and the kind of sacred lore of ghostbusters you could probably just ignore it mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but that's not what's happened and you know jason reitman must know that the 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 paul Feig remake of ghostbusters and the harassment campaign that that grew around it was you know a fairly famous thing that happened it was 
as close as we got to uh, a Gamergate crossover. Mm. So it wasn't something that, like, you know, perhaps he wasn't aware of, so he can't plead ignorance. I just, yeah, he's just really fucking dumb. Yeah. I'm not going to give him a pass on it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, speaking of dumb things, the release of Captain Marvel, which is still a few weeks away, has been somewhat marred, uh, you know, similar to Ghostbusters, as we were talking about, by people, what's known as review bombing, like writing their negative reviews or giving negative ratings to the movie before anyone's seen it in order to give it a low Rotten Tomatoes score and, and particularly giving it the lowest score of an MCU movie to date, which... Um, I mean, that's at least partly because I think a lot of those MCU movies are maybe slightly overrated. Like, mm-hmm. they all, in in Rotten Tomatoes score terms, like, they all get re- lots of reviews from people saying, yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. Which is, as we've discussed before, is not, you know, 94% doesn't mean this movie is 94% good. It mm-hmm. means 94% of people found it unobjectionable. <laughs> yeah, they thought it was okay. It seems to be that people have a lot of problem with films that are fronted by women, apparently. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. appears to be an affront to them. And it is a direct correlation between the people who were probably very upset by Ghostbusters, who will probably refer to uh, anyone who disagrees with them as a soy boy beat a cuck. Mm-hmm. And will have, you know, very real fears that in some way Captain Marvel is representative of a feminist agenda, uh, which is being forced down their throat. And, you know, they simply can't stand for it and are so horrified by the whole thing that they are going to go onto a website and downvote a movie about a pretend superhero so its ratings will go down. And... Weirdly, the pre-orders for tickets for Captain Marvel are the highest of any MCU movie that's uh, to be released. So it doesn't seem to be working on a general audience who probably are too wise to think, how is this film so badly rated when it's not out yet? Mm. But again, it is yet another kind of example of the very worst of internet fandom. And yes, the two stories are very closely linked uh, this week, and both of them are thoroughly depressing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Captain Marvel, you know, actually looks like it could be one of the more interesting or distinctive Marvel films, which should be cause for celebration, but instead we have to fucking talk about this nonsense. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of these campaigns could probably be summed up as um, pathetic actions taken for pathetic reasons. <laughs> yeah. Which is, oh, I'm going to really stick it to Disney, I guess, mm. by give, mark giving this uh, by giving this movie a rating, a poor rating on a online aggregator, and it's going to somehow win the culture war. Mm. You know, it's like people casting themselves as the heroes in their own personal quest against you know SJW feminazis or whatever, and it's it's just so. Yeah, it's just so really pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> just seeing the way that this always plays out and never, no one ever comes out of it looking good. <laughs> yeah. And all the claims are just all so demonstrably false. Like, mm. remember when the same people were trying to, you know, rag on The Last Jedi and kind of... They still talk like it was a giant financial failure. Mm. It was like the biggest grossing film of that year, and it came out in the third week of December. Yeah. And then they would say, well, you know, the the, the, the home video sales were down. It was like the, the highest-selling Blu-ray of all time. And it was just like, when do you stop 
and are shown that your reasoning and logic is so flawed and, you know, it's counter to your entire point, but yet you still are going on it and they just move on to the next film and hope no one will notice. Yeah, and then as well, when you see the arguments they're putting forward, it's just like, you know, like why are they making this movie? Why do they want to alienate half of the audience? It's like, they're not making a movie to alienate half of the audience. They're just making a movie that happens to star a female character. It's not like they're thinking, ah, yes, we're making a movie with a woman in it. No man will ever see this. They will <laughs> never have any interest in going to watch this at all. And there was a little list of this as well, like ahead of the release of Black Panther as well. Like it, it didn't, I think, get as much... Tra- I mean, this hasn't really got much traction, but I don't think it kind of had as much of a impact because uh, it's r- really easy to paint people criticizing like a movie like Black Panther with a predominantly black cast as racists, mm-hmm. and they maybe realize that we probably shouldn't take on this one. <laughs> like, it's really easy for everyone to point out just how obviously hateful and stupid we are, whereas. I think misogyny is something people can kind of get away with because they be because they can just be like, well, you know, it's like they're, they're kind of going against what the fans want or whatever, you know. And, and like misogyny is um, is it's more acceptable than racism, I think, in society in general, which is uh, depressing but probably quite true. And so it's kind of an easier thing for people to cloak their arguments in. Mm, yeah, that's a that's a truly depressing thought. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Yeah, Emily's Mister Howler this week. <laughs> I feel like we're doing her proud. Yeah, and yeah, doesn't get any better with the next story. <laughs> <laughs> Final story for this week is, of course, the news that Stanley Doan passed away. Stanley Doan was the director of such classics as On the Town and singing in the rain kind of great classic musicals also directed the musical it's only fair weather which is one of my favorite movies ever a tremendously underrated and funny uh musical about the early days of television which uh i think everyone should check out if you have a chance to i think it's more widely available now than it was like a few years ago like when i watched it i just happened to record it off tcm because the only other way was to pay like 60 dollars for an out of print dvd so now it's a little easier to get hold of but he, he also directed things like uh charade arabesque which is a really interesting and, and fun movie had not made a movie in over 30 years i think the last feature film he directed was blame it on rio with michael kane which is a somewhat uh, ignominious way to end your career when you had started it by directing things like on the town but uh, he was someone who had led, left this tremendous impact, you know, he inspired a lot of people with his work. Some of his movies were seen as the absolute pinnacle of the Hollywood mu- musical format. And he was just, you know, if you see interviews of him, particularly in something like the story of film, the Mark Cousins documentary, he was just like a truly delightful guy, a hugely passionate artist someone who really valued the work that he made and uh another good one uh two for the road another great movie uh the starred uh, the also recently passed uh, albert finney hmm. a great movie from the 1960s yeah it's it says a lot that singing in the rain is you know one of the things that people think of when they think of cinema mm. uh, you think of like the great iconic images of cinema then uh you know gene kelly hanging off the lamppost is one of them and, yeah. you know, he co-directed the film with Stanley Doan and, and Stanley Doan is every bit as responsible for ingraining that image and those ideas into the public consciousness. If people 
think about joy in cinema, they think about that scene. It's like, you know, one of the greatest scenes in cinema, the greatest musical numbers in a musical. And yet it says a lot that, you know, especially on today where we talk about the Oscars, that that film I don't even think was nominated for Best Picture that year. Mm. I think Something Terrible won that year. It was like one of the worst Best Picture winners, like The Greatest Show on Earth. or One of those films, you know, the ones that kind of is always uh, complained about one. Um, And, you know, he was never kind of recognised by the Academy. And it's it's interesting to think that when we go through the, the... the the highlight reel of the golden age of cinema that will always be there and it's kind of immovable from people's minds and it's his and you know he's he's moved on to uh to the to the great movie studio in the sky and he's uh, like like you say someone who hasn't directed a long film for a while but uh, sorry a film for a long time and it's something like this that makes you revisit all his stuff, and there's, I mean, there's only, there's, I've only really seen, I think, On the Town and Singing in the Rain, I think, those are the only two films of his I've seen. But he has got such a kind of breadth of work that, like, I really do hope that there is some kind of, like, retrospective or this gives people some kind of impetus to go back and revisit a lot of it. Mm, or that yeah, it, it just becomes, it just becomes available. Yeah. I think, also, I think for me, one of the things that's particularly... Uh, poignant about it is that like i said he hadn't he like like uh, you said he hadn't made a film in a while but about six or seven years ago like he announced that he was working on a new movie that he had written with elaine may who was his partner of many years and they had had like table readings for possible actors and they were talking to possible uh, investors and things like that so they were trying to make it and even though it seemed to never really get much further along than that initial table reading because like, when I would periodically just like Google search for any news on the new Stanley Donan movie because it seemed like such a cool possibility that we would get a new movie from him, you know, after such a long time away. But uh, it never, there was never any kind of update on it. But like for me, that was always kind of like a nice, oh, I'd like that'd be nice if that happened. And so mm. now knowing that that definitely uh, isn't going to happen unless, you know, someone grabs that script and decides to make something about it which would be nice but who knows it is kind of like that that kind of adds a certain poignancy to it because it wasn't like oh he had retired and he had nothing he had no interest in making more work it was like oh he still he still had ideas he was kicking around towards the end and Mm. they just could never quite get them together because obviously cinema is somewhat different now to (laughs) how it was in uh, the in the early eighties or in the like fifties and sixties in his heyday. Yeah, maybe uh, Netflix will other side of the wind it. <laughs> yeah, let's get Gary. Uh, no, not Gary Marshall. Get Frank Marshall in and some mannequins, and I'm sure they'll be able to knock it together. Mm. Get Gary Marshall in. <sighs> I've got bad news for you. <laughs> Sending the girls. <laughs> Different character. Oh damn it. <laughs> is very podcasty this episode oh god um, that was that was that was nerdy <laughs> so like i said this is a, a going to be a short one so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot uh, shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you will enjoy as well matt what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week i'm going to recommend patriarch with uh, hisan minaj uh it's a netflix 
of course it is, kind of current affairs uh, comedy show, kind of quite a lot in the vein of something like Last Week Tonight and the, uh, what's the one with uh, uh, Trevor Noah? The Tonight? No. D- D- Daily Show. Daily Show, that's the one. I don't watch a lot of these shows, uh, but it's in those that vein. Uh, Hassan Minaj is a uh, stand-up comic, uh, Asian-American comic, who is uh, very funny, which is good if you're a comic. That's a prerequisite, I believe, for the job. And, uh, yeah, he kind of does a kind of like a one-man show type breakdown of a particular theme each week, and it ranges from, you know, sportswear to the human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, every single week is you know thoroughly well-researched, very, very tightly written, and very, very funny. This week's show includes two amazing jokes, um, one which includes the punchline, what is it, your pancreas is your indoor dick, which <laughs> you have to see. Um, and I still laugh at thinking that there's a joke about the value of a Canadian dollar, which I won't spoil for you because you'll have to watch it because it's incredibly funny. Um, and it's it kind of came back last last week and it kind of made the news because Saudi Arabia's government had asked Netflix to take down an episode in which they were critical of the Saudi Arabian government and Netflix Mm. did and it is currently down in Saudi Arabia you can't see that episode but you know far from glossing over it in a kind of a PR move the first episode of this season is all about that and censorship Um, it's very interesting watch it's uh, 25 minutes which in today's Peak TV times is, uh, yeah, so yeah, that's a selling point. Um, and yes, it's very funny, very informative, um, and very good. I would heartily recommend The Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj. And also his stand-up special, which is called uh, The Homecoming King, which is excellent mm-hmm. as well. If uh, you are unfamiliar with his work and his style, I would definitely recommend uh, checking it out first. Also on Netflix, like everything is. <laughs> cool. I'm going to recommend a movie that's not currently on Netflix, although I'm sure it will end up there. At one point, it's currently in theatres. Mm. Like an, like an, like, like an old-fashioned movie like uh, Gone with the Wind. You know, it's in, it's in theatres now. People can go and watch it. There'll be an interval. There won't be an interview. It's not long enough. But it is the latest movie by Robert Rodriguez. It is called Alita Battle Angel, which is an adaptation of a manga from the 90s that James Cameron has been trying to make into a movie for, for many, many years. I believe it was his, his like next project for like 12, for, for like most of the time between the time that he made Titanic and Avatar. And then at a certain point, he was just kind of like, ah, I'll do this, this blue people shit instead. Mm. But he still produced it and I believe still co- uh, has a co-writing credit on it. And uh, Robert Rodriguez stepped in to direct it while Cameron directs all of the Avatar sequels. And uh, I thought it was... It's gotten some kind of mixed reviews, but I thought it was a really, really fun time. It's about a... Uh, a young woman called Alita, played by Rose Salazar, in a performance that kind of really pushes at the boundaries of what CGI can do. She plays a kind of um, a cyborg who is found by a doctor, played by Christoph Waltz, who kind of reconstructs her after finding her in bits in a uh, in a kind of a junk pile, and she has no memory. So it's partly about her trying to piece together what her past uh, might be and to try and understand her place in this world where everyone lives in this kind of really cramped industrial hellscape of a city underneath a giant floating city which is kind of ruled over by unseen elites uh, so it's partly about that so so and partly about you know the characters that she meets along the way all these, these kind of like 
misfit crew of other cyborgs and people who kind of hunt criminals because this is a world in which basically all government doesn't exist anymore it's just all corporate everyone just works for this giant corporation that services the city in the sky it's a real kind of fascinating world and while i think in places the storytelling feels a little bit rushed like maybe they cut 10 to 15 minutes out of the movie to get it to at two hours and in doing so maybe cut some connective tissue between scenes which makes for some moments that are like a little weird and jarring for, for the most part it's kind of a real rollicking good time as alita discovers that she has you know the ability to commit tremendous acts of violence against people and starts to uncover these like new powers that she have it's a real good uh, origin story for her character and a, a story of of discovery of someone kind of like waking up in a new body and trying to come to terms with what they are capable of the cast are all fantastic i really love christoph waltz as playing a more or less good guy a kind of like caring dad who maybe has a secret on the side and there's like other people in it like jennifer Connolly and mahershala ali who is uh, really fun as a character who is kind of the, I guess, the mid-level sub-boss of the movie. She he is kind of like a guy who is an impediment to what Alita wants to do and what her friends want to do, but is not really in charge of everything, but is occasionally possessed by the guy who's in charge of everything, which is a, a fun little thing to see um, Herschel Ali do. Uh, and then there's people like uh, Jackie Earl Haley in it, um, Ed Screen, who has a a hell of a fun time playing the, the the only character in the movie who's completely irredeemable and just a complete prick. And then there's some fun little cameos <laughs> from people like Jeff Jeff Fahey has a, a brief appearance as kind of like a cybernetic John Wick in that he is a guy who has a lot of dogs and gets very mad at someone when they kill a dog. <laughs> um, in my favourite character, a guy called McTeague, who I really want to see if they do a sequel. Uh, I want to see more of. And... Um, uh, Jai Courtney in one scene which made me go is that Jai Courtney or is that just an extra which is what I do whenever I see any movie with Jai, Jai Courtney to be fair but um, it was very it was very weird um, but yeah it's, it's a really I think it's a really fun movie it's like a great world that's really great to uh, visit and small storytelling issues aside I think it's a really cool fascinating original in inverted commas because obviously it's based on pre-existing story uh, um, but uh, in terms of being a story I hadn't seen told before I thought it was uh, really really exciting and promising and I, I hope that it does uh, well enough worldwide to maybe get Disney who now own Fox who produced the movie uh, initially to maybe to commit to a sequel somewhere down the line because I would like to see Alita battle again because uh, I think mm. it's, a, it's a really cool movie cool if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm acast spotify all the usual places leave us a review rate us and recommend it to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on twitter and facebook where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from me.